Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander. I'm Simon. And I'm Tony. We are still knee-deep in tech and pretty much knee-deep in corona as well, <laughs> like everybody else. This is episode 110, recorded on Friday the 13th of March 2020. As we were discussing before starting the recording, one of the probable names for this episode is Cororant. Yeah, but, but just to calm our listeners, we are all healthy. Well. As far as we know. We we don't have corona, as far as we know. No, that's that's a good point. Yeah, vi- virus-free. Virus-free. <laughs> that's another <laughs> good episode name, actually. All right, so we live in very, very strange times, because everything we knew basically a month ago, it's it's changed. The world has pretty much gone off the rails, and while... I am I'm deeply offended by the virus behaving this way. It really doesn't care about my my sentiments. So how do we actually, how do we relate to this? How do we keep working? Because we, especially Simon and I, we, we go all over the world on, on conferences. Everything is shut down. Tony, you're working from home. Simon, you're working from home. I'm working from home. How do you do that? I mean... The, the obvious answer is is go for teams. But how do you really do that? And Simon, you've been a part of building building something around this. Could you could you say th- something about that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, released yesterday were the working from home part of Microsoft Tech Community, which uh, which, which were launched by Anna Shu and I, together with some other friends from the community, have been. Um, Starting off this discussions there, and I think one thing that you said just prior to starting the recording, Alex, is that, yeah, working from home and everyone instantly thinks about, okay, uh, good team setup, good camera, good microphones. But working from home is really so much more than that and so many things that aren't tech-related but really do affect how efficient you are and how well you feel after a day at work. Uh, so things that have been shared in that part of uh, tech community and, and you can find it on Twitter we'll post links to it as well uh, is everything between office setups of course which we do very differently depending on family situations what we do how much we interact the tools we use and so on and also in terms of how we like to work so one thing that really struck me as interesting were Alex you have one of those humongous and Tony as well right the curved screens Yep. Oh, yes. Yeah, which I, for my life, can't understand. Uh, so I asked one of the other persons uh, writing at, at Tech Community, which had a similar setup, uh, w- what his thoughts were on it. And I get the ergonomics of it. I, I do get that, which is good. But I, I wouldn't change my currently four screens uh, for my life. But the thing he said were that if he only has one screen, it makes him less likely to multitask. Which was something that struck me as, yeah, that that's an interesting proposition. And I, I could understand that. Uh, so everything from that to how you schedule your day. So what I would like to share, and then it would be interesting to hear your other opinions, is that I, I started to work partly from home uh, five months ago or so now. And one of the main things I've done is that I actually have... Some, some people have two phones. I happen to have two computers. One community and personal laptop and one work laptop just to be able to shut off or all of the social media everything like that 
that makes me focus. And then I try to um, divide my day into two hour block or something like that and focus on one specific task, shutting off everything else and ensuring that I finish that task in those two hours. Uh, so that's how I make it work. And I also am, I really try hard not to do any chores or whatsoever uh, on a private level during my actual work hours because that will only mess up my focus. Good points, good points. We talked actually about this a little bit last week as well uh, in the last episode. Uh, so my my setup is completely dedicated for work. So I don't do any anything that's completely separated from my other home networks and stuff like that. So it's, it's uh, dedicated for work. It's the work computer and I don't do anything else on it. So if I need to do something else for personal th- stuff, I, I use my home computer in that case. And uh, also, like you were uh, touching upon a little, uh, the you know the social aspect uh, in the workplace. So I talked to a colleague earlier today, and he was pretty much like cl- climbing the walls by now and missing to go to work. He has been home for one week. So he he enjoys, you know, the personal connections you make at work, you know, let's have some lunch, go out, uh, grab something to eat and all those kind of things that you don't get when working from home. And also, I imagine there might be a kind of a distraction working from home if you are, for example, a family man. So you have a family that might be partially home. You have maybe pets or something, you know, a dog that needs to go for a walk or cats or whatever. That might be a distraction as well. And probably a million other things that I can't think of right now, but I'm I'm sure there's a lot. Sure, and I'm I'm different in in this respect because I I, I have a couple of, of laptops. Uh, I have a work laptop, and I have my own workstation at home, which is a pretty seriously tricked out machine. And whenever I'm working from home, I'm using that machine. So I have pretty much everything on that machine as opposed to having my, my separate um, work laptop working with. So different ways of approaching the same problem, I think. One other thing that I've, I've started to think about, I do a lot of trainings, and a lot of people have asked me, well, can't we just do the trainings online? And my instant feeling is, no, we can't, because trainings online using Teams does not work in my view. And before I I hear someone scream, yes, it does. Here's my thinking. Just trying to do the same thing as you've always done, i.e. stand, point to a PowerPoint or do demos and talk, that does not work over Teams if you have a camera trying to capture the whole thing. So you need to rethink your approach to training to suit the Teams um, way of doing things. What are your thoughts on that? The coming two weeks, I had very different plans for than I currently have. <laughs> don't don't we all? I was supposed to be in Seattle for MVP Summit the first week and then Geek Week in Chicago the second week. And Geek Week is a very unique way of training. We decided to not do the Geek Week. And uh, we then looked into, should we do this remote or not? But the thing about Geek Week is that it's all about the networking. It's all about those even hallway discussions, uh, hallway sessions. Uh, and we thought that, yeah, there are two very different ways of training. Uh, if 
someone has the need for a specific kind of training, we could do that over Teams because it would be a dialogue in the best of worlds and not a group discussion. So it would work to do regular classroom trainings with the appropriate equipment. But we see that that's not the reason why you join a Trusic Geek Week. That's for completely different reasons, and therefore it wasn't possible to do that online. At least not with the technology we would be able to scramble up until two weeks. So I think it's a lot depending on what you want to learn, why you go to trainings, what do you expect from the training apart from learning something, and ensure that you really have the solutions required to do online training. And I agree with you. Teams doesn't really have that entirely today, at least not on its own and not in an obvious way. You would need to use whiteboarding. You would need to use a different a number of different setups. You would be required to change screens, things like that. So I, so I would say that, yeah, it would be possible, but it wouldn't create the best possible learning experience. No, and that that's a good point, because I think the best possible learning po- solution is pretty much out the window. We can't do in-person trainings right now. So what is the least bad solution to that? And I, I agree completely. Just uh, some things you cannot do online. We cannot do the boot camps that I, I've uh, created. It just doesn't work. So... At the end of the day, I think it's down to expectations and and handling expectations. So let's move on. I mean, Corona has shut down MVP Summit. It has shut down SQL Bits, SQL Saturday, Stockholm, a lot of different SQL Saturdays all over the world. Microsoft Build. And those are just the events that we know about. And Sweden, Norway, and Finland and Denmark are pretty much shattered because Finland recommends nobody travel anywhere. And apparently the most important commodity today at the, the supermarket is toilet paper. Yeah, can someone explain that to me? Because I really don't get that. It's a complete hysteria over toilet paper. and uh, You can't eat toilet paper, so what's the deal? I don't get it. Well, there is a legend in the SQL Server community named Buck Woody. And Buckwoody, he has the answer because he is going to start a, a cryptocurrency. It will be based on toilet paper. It will be called Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, pretty oh, good. Oh, I would love to continue this discussion, but that have to be after 5 p.m. and not a <laughs> recorded one. And anyway... <laughs> There has been other news. For some reason, people are very efficient when working from home since we don't get less technologies released. And and one thing I would like to add before we go into the latest Power BI news, which everyone knows is coming now when Alexander has come to this part of the episode, uh, I would love when the corona hysteria calm, calms down because it will, everything will be all right in the end. I'm looking forward to seeing the data after the coronavirus. How this affects everything in the global life. So what what things have been really jumping 
from the normal. So the the um, stock market is one thing, uh, which uh, I think uh, the Swedish television made it very good in a very good way. Uh, the Swedish stock market lost two thousand billion kroners yesterday. Well, I don't care about the stock market, but I lost two thousand euros Bitcoin. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you gained 2,000 butt coins. Well, no, because there were no toilet paper in the store. Now, and, and, and it's it's definitely very interesting to, to see what the, the outcome is. So, what can we then look at our data points with? Well, I'm, I'm funny you should say that, because one of the, the updates for the Power BI Desktop March update is the dual axis line chart. And one of the best ways that I know of of being, well, misbehaving with data is using a, a dual axis line chart. So in normal line chart, you have an x-axis and a y-axis. I mean, that's, that's obvious. In a dual axis one, you have two y-axis. So that means you have one y-axis on the left and one y-axis on the right. This means that you can plot data with differing axes and you can see correlations between them. What's not so fun is that you can easily use this to manipulate what you're looking at by carefully choosing your your uh, axes. But it's it's a super nice addition. It's going to make uh, viewing data in in Power BI much much easier. I've been hoping to get this for quite some time, so I'm super happy to get it. And on the kind of sort of same thought is the multi-column sort. You, earlier, we could not sort more than one column. But say you want to sort first by, by revenue and then by state, for instance. Well, now you can just by using control click. And you can also change the order of things first by state and then by revenue or basically whatever you want. So that is also a very powerful addition to um, Power BI. And the one thing that people are talking about the most is the page navigation. We can now, which we kind of sort of could do earlier, uh, click on a, a button and go to a specific um, page in the report. Earlier, you had to do all these things with bookmarks. And you can do a lot of, of very creative things with bookmarks, but having a button go straight to a page is is definitely a game changer. And also drill down is a lot more more intuitive drill down is is about if we are looking at data for for a region for instance and we want to drill down into the different offices that's what drill down is and i create two different pages in my report and whenever i right click and go drill down on my data point i get redirected to the um the other report page already filtered for the data point that I was interested in. This is not super intuitive, but having a button take you to the drill down and the button actually says, click here to drill down, that's a whole different thing. So we've taken serious steps into creating a more user-friendly um, data environment for the data consumers. And I, I really like it. And these are just three of the several updates that came out but I, I think i will bore the two of you to tears if i keep talking about the new new stuff i'm, I'm looking at i ha actually had to google 
the dual axis line chart mm-hmm. just to figure out how it looks. Yep. And have you delivered your um, quite interesting ways of manipulating people with data session yet? No, because I was slated to do that at uh, Bits and Bits has been yep. moved. So no, it's it's not been delivered yet. Be- because I realized that I have seen these kind of charts before. Mm-hmm. And now when I look at one and don't care about the data in it, I realize how you could trick people. Oh, with yeah. It. This is a great way of, of doing data shenanigans. So if, if you are using this, be very, very clear on how and why. Exactly, yeah. But I think that that's what's fascinating with Power BI uh, and and that's that's your point with that session. I I I couldn't care less on how you gather the data and crunch the data. I I know that there are people way more skilled on that than I am, but I really enjoy seeing how you can visualize it and how you can trick people and how you can manipulate people and how you can manipulate data. And I think by pointing out the news, uh, it's a very good way to to drive under, an understanding of how easy it is to manipulate data, which we can see with Corona as well. Oh, absolutely, because th- this this session could just as easily be called uh, an hour of Fox News, uh, because <laughs> oh, a lot of the... Oh. No, that, that's true. A lot of the examples that I, I am using are based on stuff that Fox News has put up, and I am flabbergasted about at, at what people do. So yeah, and as you say, the the whole Corona crisis is, is is definitely a good example of what happens when you have data. Just look at what happens in Sweden. People are screaming their lungs out to close the schools. Yeah, and the the Swedish authorities are saying, well, we could do that, but we don't think that is a good choice because A, B, and C. And here I think, and this is kind of a, a dangerous opinion. I'm 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 pretty sure that. Media is doing both harm and good because, the, the, I, in my view, they are concentrating on whipping up as much dissent and, and scare as possible instead of calmly pointing to the numbers. Let's yep. just take um, the number of cases, by the way. What does that mean? It means the number of identified cases. It has nothing to do with the actual number of people having the disease. And that's a whole different thing. Yeah, and those numbers are expected to go down as of, uh, was it yesterday or Wednesday? Why? Not because the spreading has uh, let let out at all, because they just stopped taking tests in Stockholm. And they are now uh, telling us that uh, that will also uh, go in effect for the whole country during next week. So, of course, the infection spreading goes down if you don't measure it anymore. Exactly. And that, that, that's a good point. Yeah, I don't get it. That's just stupid. Well, in that specific case, I think that comes down to not having the, the um, resources to do uh, mass testing. Now, and that's a whole different discussion. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Doesn't matter. I think that's why they did it. And I, I kind of respect the fact that they went out and said, we're not going to do this. But it, it definitely comes down to how do you how do you use this data? How do you compare it to, for instance, Switzerland or Austria or the US? That's where it becomes dangerous. And and on that point, 
I would like to point out that there are quite a lot of fraud links going around the internet in terms of finding information, which you you should be really careful uh, to click links in terms of Corona. Um, because th- there are plenty of fraud links and things like click here to see how many people are infected in your area of a certain country. And then you hand them all of your address information. That's a very stupid thing to do. Oh, yeah. Of course, there will be fraudulent people out there uh, explo- exploiting this hysteria that's going on right now. That's absolutely. Yeah. And, the, and that's something we are expecting as well. Uh, like we, we see a number of creative but highly insecure ways of enabling your workforce to work remotely currently. And and I'm certainly, and my company is certainly expecting a lot of attacks during the coming weeks, uh, just targeted towards common ways and common bad ways of um, enabling remote work. Um, so I'll hopefully be able to uh, create a blog post on that to show how you should be doing a number of different things and pointing out how you really shouldn't do it. But let's just say, opening up RDP towards the internet, that's not a good way to do it. It is a very creative way of doing it. It is, but I pointed that out on Twitter last week, I guess, that opening up RDP on a public IP is not even as leaving your door unlocked. It's, it's, it's like removing the entire front side of your house. Uh, because th- that's, th- that's not even a targeted attack. It's, it's just someone trying to find a way in. And once they're in, the attacks are very, very hard to throw out. Yeah, that's, that's true. And speaking of blog posts, oh. I might actually have one coming up uh, this time around. Nice. I, I had a pretty interesting case here just recently. Um, so uh, you know what the domain suffix search list is, right? That's not a biggie. It's been around for ages. So if you type ping a hostname, it will add automatically all those search suffixes uh, to that hostname to make a fully qualified domain name, right? So non-domain joined machines, for example don't know about uh, a domain network unless you actually supply the domain suffix search list with that domain name. So how can you actually uh, distribute this information using DHCP? Well, you have the option 015, which is DNS domain name. So you can add it there. But what happens if you need multiple domain names uh, applied to all your clients? Well, option 15 doesn't really matter anymore because that doesn't support multiple names. It is only single names. So, enter option DHCP option 119, which is officially known as the DNS search suffix name. So, uh, Microsoft uh, doesn't support this option by default. You have to configure it yourself. It does not exist in the DHCP server at all, uh, by default again. So you need to add it yourself manually, and then you can populate this value with multiple domain names. So uh, because these values for these domain names are actually in hexadecimal, of course they are, because why wouldn't they be? So then you will need to do some PowerShell trickery to actually you know, take a host name, convert that to hex value, and then feed it to uh, the DHCP server. 
So I did actually a little uh, looping funny script that actually does this for either one scope or a thousand scopes. It takes a few seconds to run and it's all done. So I thought I would actually make a, a blog post about that. Cool. Looking forward to it. Definitely. And and when, when we were talking about uh, PowerShell, there came a completely unexpected post the other day on, on Power BI forums. Um, so a data set in Power BI desktop, how do you make that into a Power BI data flow? Well, it depends on how you want to do it, but most of the time you get to pretty much redo the whole thing. But a guy by the uh, moniker Nolock created a, a script to take a data set and create a data flow out of it. So he creates the the JSON uh, metadata files to just import into a Power BI data flow. I'm going to link that in the show notes because that is just wow. Super, super, super cool. And another little funny PowerShell thingy that I actually uh, typed up this week as well uh, was actually for certificates. So you have your Microsoft PKI uh, on site in your domain, but you need to check out, say, for example, 50 different uh, SSL certs for Linux machines. That would be a lot of manual clicking to do that. So you have to first, you know, request it from a Windows box, then issue it, sign it, get it back to the Windows box, uh, import it to that Windows box, then export it with the private key. So it's pretty much a lot of clicking, you know. So because uh, the guy who runs our Linux servers uh, didn't feel like doing this for a day or two, uh, I wrote him up a PowerShell script that actually just takes a input file with all the host names that he will be using, including subject alternate names, uh, so he can just type them in there and run my script and it will do the certificate issuing and all the the whole circle uh, automatically in just a matter of minutes. And he will get uh, uh, finished PFX files delivered in a, in a folder for him. So then he can just go ahead and import those in on his Linux machines. He might need to do actually some OpenSSL stuff first to split the cert from the key because I think Linux works in that way. I don't think Linux supports PFX natively. So my, my immediate question there is, could you do that work for him using PowerShell as well? Uh, of course, uh, because I know that OpenSSL, I, th I believe, is still available for Windows as well. And because I can invoke uh, command lines from PowerShell, I could maybe do that as, as well. But then again, it's been like 15 years since I last worked with OpenSSL, so... I don't <laughs> think anything's changed. Uh, probably not, no. Cool. Now, this, this, is, this is extremely cool in my view, because yep. just by a fairly small amount of work from your part, I, I wouldn't say that it is small per se, but it's, it's a fairly small, you have vastly improved the day for a colleague of you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like doing those kind of things, actually. We're kind of sort of running out of time, and I just want to circle back to the whole corona and data. And it's not so much about corona, but it's about data, and especially in times of crisis as we are now. Always remember that data does not have an opinion. Data does not have any voice. But everyone who disseminates data has an agenda. So always ask, 
why is this person coming to this conclusion? What is he or she trying to push? Always, always question the motive behind something. Most of the time, it's it's perfectly benign. But if you're not questioning it, you might end up just swallowing something wholesale that is definitely not the way to go. Yeah, absolutely. And I think on on that um, data-related bombshell thingy-ish, that was very bad. Yeah, that was very bad. I know. Let's just... But, but we sort of made Corona interesting this week. <laughs> you know, data-wise. Oh, dear. Uh. <laughs> Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure as always. We'll be back next week, hopefully, for the episode 111. Yep. Since, since we now happen to have plenty of uh, daytime, I think if, if we aren't able to figure out any time to record, we uh, shouldn't be recording at all. I'm going to hold you to that. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back as soon as possible with episode 111. Until then, have a good one. Bye. Bye. Bye now.